0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. I am so energized and ready to have you here today and tell you about today's show. We are going to be talking about the number one cancer risk for men today, prostate cancer. Uh, You'll be joining my guest, filmmaker Peter Starr, to discuss how he survived this disease without drugs, radiation, or surgery. Before we hop into that topic, if you happen to have missed last week's show, we were talking about false accusations, why women lie about rape. Clue, most of the excuses had nothing to do to do with sex of course so find out why these women um so many case studies are happening today with regard to women who are just emotionally unstable or emotionally don't like their life or what have you tag you're it Um, she's not invested in you in any way so you know she's just going to send you to jail because that'll make her feel better i guess so anyway anyway, tune into last week's show if you happen to have missed it very easy to find all you have to do is Go to Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate Show, Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate Show, and you can catch up on this show and any and all of my archive shows. Um, The link there will take you to uh, the the previous show, and then if you want to go to the 2016 shows, they are on a different playlist, so you'll just need to uh, go to the playlist that says 2016. So what I can advise you to make it super easy, if you haven't done so already, uh, go to my Facebook fan page, same name as the show, so it's easy to remember, the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross, the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross, and on the Facebook fan page, you will see all of these links for your listening pleasure. All right? So let's hop into today's topic. We're going to be talking to Peter Starr. He is a 12-year survivor of prostate cancer without surgery, drugs, or radiation, like I mentioned, which also happens to be the name of the documentary on the same subject that was broadcast over many PBS stations recently. This 74-year-old following a long and successful career in the motion picture business. Peter currently runs the Healing Arts Education Foundation that disseminates information and educates men and their spouses about natural alternatives to conventional radical treatments. So we're very pleased to have him here today. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did you first uh, become aware that you were that you had this disease? And t- tell us a few words about, you know, where it has taken you to lead to where you are now.
1: Well, I think the important thing is that uh, most men don't have um, any symptoms of prostate cancer when they get diagnosed, and they generally find out because somebody is either ramrodded them into getting a PSA test because they think it's the thing to do, or right. you you go for a regular um, physical checkup and the doctor might do a, a digital rectal exam or take a PSA reading as a as a part of that um, annual physical test. In my case, that was the that was the issue. My PSA for many years had been one point two, which is something that nobody would even give a second thought to. But my uh-huh. doctor did a DRE, digital rectal exam, found what he thought was um, a nodule, sent me off to the urologist who promptly said, oh, yes, we have to do a biopsy. I had no idea what a biopsy was at that time. And, um, but they did one and um, a procedure that I will never have done ever again. And um, promptly said, well, you have cancer. And this was the start of a slide uh, almost down a mountainside, if you like, about panic, and about fear, and about what the hell's gonna to happen to me, and I'm gonna die, and it's gonna be soon. Because what the doctor was Ill- ill-equipped to deal with was telling people that they had cancer. And um, the conversation I had with this particular urologist lasted about eight seconds. In fact, I didn't have a conversation. It was a monologue. He called me up and he said, hi, doctor blank blank, and he said, uh, yep, you got cancer want you to read this book by Patrick Walsh and then uh, come in and see me. Click. That was the end of the conversation.
0: Wow. So and
1: cold. So, so cold. Well, consequently, and as most men know, and I get calls like this, I, I do consultations with men frequently. I mean, I did three today already. And most of these men get told in a similar way. They have no concept or idea about what it is they're facing and they're freaked out. And as, as was I. And... Um, Uh, what happens is that the fear that they put into you at that point actually, they hope, will play into their hands in controlling your decision-making process. Because if you don't do what they want you to do, they don't go home with a paycheck. And instead of educating men about the entire spectrum of what's available to them, they want you to do what they want you to do. And the consequences that you face if you do that are not explained fully. Now, let me say right up front that after 12 years of studying this, I am not against anybody doing surgery, radiation or hormone therapy if they understand what the consequences are. I mean, uh, there it's obvious that there are some men that do well under surgery. Many don't. Some do. It's not entirely uh, a failure. Uh, it's just that men do not get explained what the potentials are for the surgery, the ramifications of um uh, things like impotence, incontinence, and the return of cancer is just not explained. And if it was, then men would have a different set of parameters to guide them through what they think is the best thing for them to do. And the other thing also is um, when I do a consultation, the first consultation is always with the the significant other, whether it's a spouse or a wife or a girlfriend, um, so that they understand also. Because many women, and I pointed this out in my documentary, many women will say to their husband, do whatever the doctor tells you. Irrespective of whether whatever the doctor does is going to affect that woman later down the road. And I've well, seen she's, this,
0: prob- she's probably just as ignorant as, as the medical profession is in informing you what the different options are.
1: Well, it's true, and then what happens is, uh, further down the road, when the man is incapable of, uh, should we say, fulfilling his marital obligation... Um, And the woman at that point may or may not be active sexually herself, but it's not just the removal of the prostate and the inability to have sex. It's it's the fact that when you remove the prostate, it's like taking the uterus out of a woman. It changes the entire picture. It it, it changes the manhood, if you like. And of course, I knew nothing about this 12 years ago when I started. I was in a a flat panic just about like every other man is when they get diagnosed. And unfortunately... um, Or as we say, fortunately, you're not going to die tomorrow if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer. And you do have time to study the issue. And that's what we do. We try to get men to study the issue. We provide them with a lot of data that they just don't get in in other places. And explain to them the ins and outs of what it is they face. And there's a lot of data that just isn't coming across from conventional medicine. And um, I'll give you an example. I listened to a 30-minute BBC radio show that a friend of mine sent me from the UK. And this was hosted by a doctor. And within the space of 25 minutes of the show, there was four glaring errors in data that this doctor put across to the public. And he did it by talking to urologists and having urologists tell them the story. Well, he didn't know enough to challenge what they said and and say, oh, I read this story, I read this particular reviewer i read this clinical trial or, or whatever it happens to be to challenge that he took it verbatim as being the truth and um within the space of 25 minutes four major issues and uh, i intend to take that up with the bbc at some point to say look you know ask the right questions and you might get the right answers if you don't ask the right questions you're not likely to get the right answers
0: very good point if you want to share with us what those four points are uh, as soon as we come back from the break, that would be really good. Uh, by the way, if you've just joined us, uh, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We have my special guest on today, filmmaker Peter Starr. He's here to talk to us about prostate cancer. So we'll talk to you uh, right back after the break. Um, we have call-in lines open. You can call us at 951 922 3532 Again, that number is 951-922-3532. We'll join you right back after the break.
2: Hey, guys, do you have a nagging problem that you just can't get a handle on? Now you can talk to an expert coach right in the privacy of your own home. Meet in person, over the phone, or with a free Skype call anywhere in the world. Linda is here to make it easy for you. Linda Gross has done years of academic research combined with interviewing over 20,000 men. Linda's expert advice gets you through tackling relationship issues, business goals, conflict resolution, and removing lifetime roadblocks that have kept you back, usually handled in four sessions or less. Realize the benefits now. Go to the Men's Advocate page slash coaching and you'll be on your way. On KMET, 1490 AM, Smart Talk.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You're currently listening to The Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Today, we are talking about surviving prostate cancer with my guest, Peter Starr. Do call in on this topic at 951-922-3532. Again, that number is 951-922-3532. Prostate cancer happens to be the number one cancer risk for men. um, It falls in second place just behind lung cancer for cancer killers. So uh, that's why I decided to do this topic today because it is so prevalent. More than uh, 2.9 million men in the United States have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Of those, uh, we get probably about 200,000 new cases per year in the U.S. alone. It is one of the leading causes of cancer death among men of all races. About one in seven will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during his lifetime. And the average age um, at the time of diagnosis is about 66 years of age. So let's rejoin. Uh, my guest, Peter Starr, we were talking about you were watching a television program and you noticed just in a short span of time in a half an hour show that there were several errors that the uh, commentator was making. If you care to share any of those, that that would be great.
1: I'd be happy to. In fact, if I may correct you on one of your statistics also, is sure. that uh, black men have a 30% higher rate of prostate cancer and a 60% higher rate of death by prostate cancer nice. than, uh, than white men. So, in fact, it does affect all races, but it doesn't affect all races equally. And uh, depending on your point of view and how you study this, one can say that one's lifestyle plays a huge part in whether you get prostate cancer or not, and diet being part of that lifestyle, that's an important consideration. But anyway, that's uh, yeah. just something I'd like to point out because some of my clients um, are black. that come to me because they're not getting the right information themselves. All they've been told is... Uh, the the regular things, and they get railroaded into doing things which, quite honestly, um, lead them down a very slippery path as to whether or not they're going to survive. And um, so I try to get them, even if they've had um, prostate removal or surgery, I still try to get them to change their lifestyle and change their diet and change the way they and things like that, because inevitably, that's what's going to change things. Yes, it like so
0: many, like so many diseases, it is very much related, closely related to you know what you're eating and what you're ingesting. Um, you know, unfortunately, with all the chemicals and pesticides and you know hormone disruptors and <laughs> all the madness that we have to mm-hmm. deal with today in our food in- industry, it's just one more thing that you know leads to cancer.
1: Absolutely, and it's it's important. I think that um, uh, you know when doctors talk to their patients, is that they talk to them about the way they live their lives. The unfortunate part about many doctors, they just don't have time to do that in the seven minutes they get to spend with a regular patient, and that's why it pays, I think, to go to a doctor that will spend more time with you, even if you have to pay it. You know, pay for it separately.
0: I think it's not just a time issue. You know, it doesn't service their needs. Like you say, it does service their needs for the patient to do what they say because that's when they get a paycheck. So when there's, well, if the, if the yeah. end result in it for the doctor is to not get a paycheck, then there's no motivation for them to spend the extra few minutes saying, here's how you can curb some, some of the, these issues. Well, some of the, I just
1: uh, recently was in Seattle. I gave a talk in front of 14 doctors at a clinic in Seattle, uh, many of whom have, uh, have confronted prostate cancer patients, and uh, many that hadn't. And um, it, it was enlightening to some of those that hadn't to understand the relevance of the disease and what men actually go through um, and how they, should be better, how they could be better treated in the attitude of the doctor in making that patient feel more comfortable in whatever information the doctor has going to tell them. Um, The bedside manner I know it's it's an old cliche but it's so important when you're telling somebody he's going to die from cancer Um, it can make a lot of difference as to whether that uh, patient receives the information decides to process it and move forward to to defeat the disease in other words not be a victim of the disease or, or whether he just accepts the fact he's going to die and dies
0: right it's often oftentimes it's not a life sentence so that information is more valuable than ever
1: well there's a a lot of statistics um about uh, whether you're going to die from it or not and a lot of this a lot of the the stats actually come out of the uk who seem to be do uh, do a much better job of assembling clinical trials and analyzing them and putting out the data uh one of these is that um, men between the ages of 50 and 59 there's a 50 percent chance that they will already have prostate cancer the key is that 85% of those will never know it. It'll never become a problem. They will die with it, not of it. The, the trick, of wow. course, is, is to figure out which is that 15%. And there are ways. Now, to, now
0: you, uh, men, now you mentioned briefly that there, is, that there are no telltale symptoms, right? No, I not So didn't it's very hard there. to detect.
1: I said most men do not have uh, symptoms, but there are right. telltale symptoms that will lead you to doing things that could result in a, in a diagnosis. But let me give you, a, give you an example. Let's say, for instance, the man goes for his annual exam and, and uh, uh, his PSA is, is up. It's above what would be considered normal, although in reality, there is no normal anymore for the PSA level. Um, let's just say he's got an elevated PSA and the doctor says, wow, we better do a biopsy. Well, before you do a biopsy, one should ask the, uh, the man, has he ridden a bicycle lately? Did he have sex last night? What has he done that might have aggravated the prostate, spiking this protein production called PSA? Men don't get asked that, generally speaking. He's off to the urologist and immediately they want to do a biopsy. Well, as I've just said, if you men between 50 and 59, 50% of you have already got prostate cancer. It's just that most of them it'll never be a problem but if that urologist does the biopsy finds prostate cancer guess what he's going to suggest a radical prostatectomy or other radical treatments 85 percent of which are unnecessary now this is not my study this is also a study from stanford university so it's not these are numbers i'm just not making them up out of thin air this is stuff that's clinically um confirmed by people like Stanford University and uh, like um, uh, Trinity College in London, which is one of the big uh, prostate cancer research units in London. And Um, would you
0: say that the biopsy procedure was, uh, uh, you know, distasteful or painful?
1: um, Could be both. Uh, It depends on how well it's done or how easily it's done. But if you can imagine a a probe being put into the rectum up against the prostate and – unleashing a a needle, 1.5 millimeters in diameter, a hollow needle, into the prostate and withdrawing about a half an inch of flesh out of the prostate, not once, not twice, not six times, but 12 times, uh, hoping to find cancer, then, you know, it could be... it can be literally a pain, and you will bleed, and you will bleed. Sounds <laughs> like
0: a procedure that no guy would want to go through. <laughs> well, <laughs> Most it's, guys it's would have to be drugged. <laughs> they don't and, like and anything going up the exit door.
1: Yes, and um, but anyway, the that's what happens, and then they, those samples are sent up to the pathology lab where they're analyzed by pathologists, and they'll he'll come with some sort of a result. Um, there's another thing about that as well. In America versus Europe. When you get the results back from the pathologist, it will come with what's called a Gleason score. And that Gleason score runs from 2 to, uh, to 10, and most of them being under 6. Now, in America, what has happened is if you get a Gleason score of 4, they will say, well, to be on the safe side, we should do a radical prostatectomy, or you should consider radiation or any other thing. In Europe now, hang on a second. <coughs> Excuse me. In Europe... If you're at Gleason is six, they won't even treat you. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. I, I need to take a, a drink of water here. The um, And the reason being, the odds of you dying from a Gleason six grade of cancer is infinitely less than a seven and above. And the cost of the treatment, both in the radical um, after effects... Versus the result of you being cancer-free the rest of your life um, is minute. It's, um, in fact, one of the things that people die of uh, is a recurrent cancer after the prostate's been removed. And you say, well, how can that happen? The, the surgeon will often say, well, I guess we didn't get it all. In, when in fact, the cancer is the end result of a situation in the body. And if you don't change that situation the systemic part of the disease, there's no, there's no reason the cancer comes back. Ask a woman with breast cancer that's had her breast removed and the cancer comes back. It's a very similar thing. Not as, not as radical as a woman with breast cancer, but the return of cancer is significant. And by removing the, the prostate, you cannot guarantee that the cancer is gone or it will not come back. So I want us to take that into consideration when you say, I'm not going to change my diet and lifestyle. Or am I going to have the prostate removed? And understand what the consequences may or may not be.
0: So you're saying it might not be a case that he or she, the doctor, didn't get it all. It's more likely the case of the patient didn't change their diet and lifestyle. And it's just regenerating and creating new cancer cells.
1: Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a big part of it. And um, it's just that a lot of people can't admit that they... Um, They took the prostate out, but they didn't cure the disease.
0: Right, right. They they don't want to take accountability that they're a they're a major factor, a contributor to whether they get it again or what the disposition is.
1: Oh, you. One of my favorite phrases is that your doctor didn't cure, didn't cause your cancer. I can't even say it. Your doctor did not cause your cancer, and whether or not you get cured from it is very much up to you. Right. It's, oh, um,
0: if, if you should know, um, did you remember one or two of the, uh, the errors from the documentary?
1: I did, and the first one was uh, dealing with PSA.
0: The okay. doctors
1: said. That by
0: the way, let's tell our listening audience, in case they don't know what that, that term means, what is PSA?
1: Well, PSA stands for prostate specific antigen. And it's a protein that was uh, diagnosed or identified back in about 1980 by a research scientist called Richard Ablin. And at the time that he released the findings that he had, he actually came out and said, this is not an indication of cancer. It's an indication of inflammation. Big difference. And what happened was, um, at Stanford University, a a doctor called Thomas Staley decided it was an indication of cancer and put out papers that said that you need to, if your PSA is elevated, then you need to get a biopsy. And, of course, that eventually led to a massive increase in the number of biopsies and, and consequently, as I've told you before, because of the fact that men over 50 have a one in two chance of already having prostate cancer, they find the cancer and then have to do radical treatment. Mm-hmm. And they you have a trail of men then with radical treatment because they did, didn't listen to what Richard Ablin, the man that discovered the, the prostate-specific antigen uh, protein, um, said back in 1980. Now... Mm-hmm. The doctor in London said in his radio program that PSA is prostate specific. Now we know that it is not prostate specific, and the reason you can tell that is if uh, if you thump a man in his breast, and I'm talking about the breast as opposed to the chest in the centre, the, the breast part. Yes. His his PSA will spike. Maybe not a lot, but maybe enough to cause attention. The other thing is that they've now found that particular protein in women. Not in huge amounts, but they've found it in women. So it is no longer Mm prostate-specific. Just a thought. Now, you think a doctor would, if he didn't know that, would do a bit of research in that area. But that's one of the points. And the other point was the, the fact that uh, it was the Wait, assumption. Don't hold
0: that thought one second, Peter. So sure. the original person that invented this antigen, what was his main goal? You're saying it does measure inflammation. So what would you, what would one do? What would a medical practitioner do with that information? In other words, if the if the uh, inflammation was elevated, what would you then do? Instead of diagnosing well, prostate cancer, what would you do with that information?
1: Initially, you treat it as inflammation. And if the if oh, the PSA- to try to
0: bring the inflammation down.
1: Yes, and if the PSA goes down,
0: mm-hmm.
1: prob- problem solved. And I've had I've had many clients this way. Uh, their PSA has been up in the 14s to 17s, and the first thing the urologist wants to do is is a, is a uh, biopsy. And the, the clients come to me and say, "What do you think I should do?" And I say, "Well, first of all, let's take let, let's do a 3D color Doppler ultrasound. Let's take a look inside the prostate and see if we see anything obvious." Okay. And, if and if there's nothing obvious, in other words, if it's clear, the chances of you having an aggressive, large tumor in the prostate is reduced because it looks clear on this 3D Doppler ultrasound. And by the way, it's not just ultrasound. It's also they can measure blood flow. And if there's excessive blood flow to a certain part of the prostate, that would indicate a, a tumor as well. So th- there's other areas of using this 3D Doppler that a doctor will use to uh, help him diagnose whether or not there's cancer or possibly cancer there. Um, So that's the first thing we do. If it's clear, then maybe the man needs some antibiotics. Then you give him a course of antibiotics. And and I'm not trying to be a doctor here because I'm not. But the doctors that I send my clients to are well-versed in this. And the last thing they want to do is a biopsy. They want to, first of all, find out what's causing that inflammation. It may be cancer, but it might not. And uh, I can name three, well, I won't name them because I don't put the names on the radio, but uh, three most recent where this has been a case.
0: And their inflammations have been diminished or reduced.
1: Uh, totally gone away after a course of antibiotics. Wow.
0: That's awesome. What was the other point that you remembered from the, the glaring error?
1: Oh, we sort of touched on it later, early on rather, when I said, we talked about the fact that if you remove the prostate, you don't necessarily remove the cancer. Or the cause of the cancer. Right. And uh, and they never once in the program looked at the statistics that exist about the number of deaths from uh, the return of cancer. Now, this doesn't happen immediately, but there are, there are studies out there that will tell you that um, in certain circumstances, the return of cancer can happen within three to five years uh, from radical prostatectomy, uh, even sooner with radiation. And within 10 years, it's much higher. Because the the patient has not changed the cause that, or the elements that cause the cancer to grow in the first place.
0: Got it. All right. If you've just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Do call in. We have phone lines open at 951-922-3532. Again, that number is 951 922 3532. We are currently talking about surviving prostate cancer. You're on with my guest, Peter Starr. When we come back from the break, let's talk about lifestyle and diet. What can you personally do to up your odds in preventing or delaying or surviving cancer yourself? We'll catch you right back after the break.
2: You've had a long day. You just want to escape the world, and you know just the place to do it. Round up your mates and head on over to Henson Brewing Company, Burbank's first craft brewery. Quality, complexity, and always easy to drink. Follow our progress and support us on Facebook and Kickstarter. Coming winter 2016. Henson Brewing Company. Come as you are.
3: Hi, guys. You've heard her on the Men's Advocate Show. Linda Gross wants you to know what turns a woman on and makes her go wild so she just can't help herself. Check out Linda's book, Mastering Women, Real Truth About Women That'll Change Your Life Forever. Linda gives you all the insider tips on how to catch a woman and if you want, to keep her. In four easy steps, these proven techniques will make women just melt.
2: Now back to the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross on KMET 1490 AM, where men can be men.
0: welcome back everybody if you've currently joined us you are listening to the men's advocate show with me your host linda gross we have open phone lines now call us at 951-922-3532 again that number is 951-922-3532 you are on with my guest filmmaker peter Starr. we are talking about surviving prostate cancer he does do consultations on this issue but both to the cancer victim and also uh, his partner. You can reach him at survivingprostatecancer.org. Again, that uh, information is survivingprostatecancer.org. I will will put these uh, links, by the way, after the show is done on my Facebook fan page. You can also check out his documentary that we talked about at the top of the show at that same website. So welcome back. Uh, Peter, let's dive into lifestyle and prevention and diet. What can the patient do? Um, or hopefully, let's catch him before he's a patient. What can the man do to up his odds to avoid or survive this, this disease?
1: Well, there's four elements that we look at. Uh, one is uh, what we call finding out what your body is deficient in. Um, you can't look at a man's body and say, well, this is a problem or well, that's a problem. You really need to look at it scientifically. And we, we do a 62-point blood analysis to take a look at what's really going on inside the body and analyze that and say, okay, you're deficient in this or you're excessive in that or whatever happens to be, and balance that whole thing. The second thing is to find out what your body is toxic with. And the are tests to do this, and what we find, generally speaking, is that a cancerous prostate will have excessive levels of nickel, cadmium, mercury, and lead, particularly mercury. That's uh, present mostly in prostate cancer patients. The third thing is um, hormones. Now, as most men know, their regular testosterone numbers uh, start depleting at about age 35, and they go down, depending on the man, from 1% to 3% a year. And um, the time they get diagnosed with prostate cancer, they find that their, uh, their free testosterone reading is quite low, and their estrogen levels are elevated. And that has to be reversed. Now, there's a lot of controversy about that with uh, a lot of doctors, but the most outspoken in this is the head of urology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, who wrote an amazing book called Testosterone for Life. And it explains in there the real reason for testosterone and what happened to the data that originally started where doctors start saying that testosterone's a problem. Testosterone is not the cause of prostate cancer. Elevated estrogen is. And that's the big wow. thing to discuss with your doctor because you have to figure out what's going on with your hormones and balance them. The fourth thing is, and this is the most difficult thing for most men to even think about. Oh, by the way, uh, when we talk about testosterone, we're not talking about libido. Um, the two may be connected, they may not. So just because a man has a healthy uh, sexual appetite uh, has nothing to do with necessarily the level of uh, free testosterone, not bound or total testosterone, but the free testosterone. Just to clarify that little point. The fourth thing is what we call emotional trauma. And most men have a real hard time with this. Most women understand that the relationship of stress and emotions to disease. Most men bottle their emotions and they keep them inside and that is not good. And so the fourth part of this, uh, these, these four elements that we deal with is to deal with unresolved emotional traumas. And these can go back to, to the time you were born, or that could be last year for a nasty divorce or whatever. But to resolve those clarifies the pathways to actually allow the rest of what you're doing to take a good effect. So those are the four things. Now, to tell someone that they shouldn't eat meat, I don't think is right. I don't think necessarily vegetarianism is a good thing. Um, we are omnivores. Um, the, the key issue is what we eat and the way we eat it. Um, we don't take our time over eating like many European nations do. It's, it's a, we, we swallow the food and we suck it in almost. And um, a lot of the food that men eat or people eat generally, fast foods, are full of preservatives. Now I'm not saying that one hamburger is bad for you. What I'm saying is that a lifetime of hamburgers is definitely bad for you. So if you just grab a quick sandwich every now and again, not such a big deal. But if your if your entire life is spent eating fast foods and cereals and stuff like that, um, that's a problem. And we see it also in uh, in obesity and diabetes. Uh, it's not just there's other reasons why prostate cancer is so prevalent, and that's a big part of it.
0: Hmm. I'd like to go a little more in depth with all four of these categories. When you say deficiency, does, are you talking about minerals in the body? What exactly are you talking about?
1: Yeah, well, minerals. This, um, I mean, minerals is, is also a big part. I mean, things like selenium. Um, we are selenium deficient for the most part. That's important. We're magnesium deficient. Uh, that's important, but you can't say you can't deal with it as a as a a grand number or a grand figure, you have to look at the person individually and look at what results they get. And The, the way we do this is on a normal medical scale, um, they, they say, oh, if you're within this, this scale, then you're okay. And I'll give you an example with vitamin D3. Uh, D3 has become a major issue with a lot of diseases and particularly prostate cancer because there is ample data now to say that if you live in, for instance, Hawaii, where you get a lot of sunshine and therefore your body absorbs and makes a lot of vitamin D3, your chances of getting prostate cancer are significantly less than if you live in Boston or Maine, Mm -hmm. where you get less and less sunshine, create less and less vitamin D3. And D3 is, is not only an issue for prostate cancer, but many other diseases. So what happens is the level of diseases per capita goes up as you get away from the sun. Now, the D3 test which is a blood test. It's a very simple test. You take, All you have to do is prick a finger and send the blood away to a lab and they will tell you what your D3 levels are. We'll run from 20 to 100. Now, many doctors will tell you if, you if you're if you're at 25 or 30, oh, don't worry about it. You're within the, the limits. When in reality, the function that your body needs to put you through and needing D3 for demands a D3 level of between 50 and 70. And if you already have cancer, we try to get your levels up beyond that. So the functionality of the body relies more upon the right levels of substances rather than the total medical scale, which most blood tests do. So we call it a functional blood analysis, and we analyze things on a very narrow scale to find out what your body is really doing.
0: Right, I know a lot of health plans because of their health insurance carrier, you know, they they say they they set the limit so high that you might be what's called subclinical, that that your levels might be just below what is approved by the the medical insurance carrier to approve for, approve your treatment. So you right. have to be careful with stuff like that. That a lot of people do have an affliction or they're on the road to an illness and all of that is not detected by most common health carriers so you have to really be an advocate for yourself to dig deep to see what your levels are and and what is the range and how you know the overall picture is affecting the patient themselves
1: and one should actually do this very early on i mean to be quite honest we need a baseline Um, so that that when things start to go wrong we can say oh at age 40 I was this at age 50 I was this but by age 60 boy look at this now look at how I'm deteriorating in this category and then you have a good idea of what you need to do to supplement or to change your diet and lifestyle to change that to get it back to where you would really like it to be I mean our hormones we should try to get our hormones back to a level of when we're 40 years old not 65 or 75
0: now, what are you uh, suggesting with regard to hormones? You're talking about bioidentical um, hormone replacement, or how do you does, suggest improving well it hormones?
1: It doesn't matter so much with, uh, with testosterone, because um, in, testosterone injected is perfectly good, uh, as well as bioidentical hormones. In some respects, injecting uh, testosterone into the fatty tissues of the stomach is a lot easier and better and trying to get men to uh, lather their arms in bioidentical hormones, um, but again, the levels are important. And uh, measuring the le- levels of free testosterone, which is uh, the easiest way to do that, is actually with saliva. And uh, it can be done with blood, but it takes a little more effort to do that. Uh, you can get a saliva panel done um, of six major male, male hormones for $180. And, uh, it's a lot to and it's a lot easier to understand. Um, it's a lot easier to to prescribe then whichever form of testosterone replacement that you need, or progesterone replacement. I mean, there's there's several ways to do it based on the results that the doctor gets from the um, uh, from a saliva panel. Same with blood, also. I mean, it'll give you the readings. What you do with those readings depends upon what the readings are and how the doctor uh, interprets them and prescribes whichever form of testosterone or progesterone that they want to give
0: you right and concurrently men have to be on the lookout for products that will increase estrogen because there definitely is a trend by some of these major multinational corporations to increase the estrogen levels thereby making men less virile so i'm constantly saying tips on this kind of stuff like Boys. pva in plastic bottles you know don't drink soy um lavender soap the lavender increases a man's uh, estrogen levels um you know uh, another way to improve your testosterone is go to the gym pumping iron improves testosterone eating red meat occasionally maybe not more than maybe like once a week week but I, I don't i agree with you avoiding red meat altogether isn't the isn't the way to go but occasionally eating red meat that also puts more testosterone in your system so it's you know it's finding out what improves the testosterone and what decreases the estrogen that will help the, the patient in the long run
1: and the, fr- the, the the significant number to look for is actually the free testosterone Total testosterone really means very little um, because it can be very high, but that testosterone could be almost entirely bound to other proteins and therefore is of no use to the body in doing what it needs to do, which is take care of your muscles and your bones. Um, So the free testosterone is the number that you need to look at, not the total testosterone. And and so you you base your treatment on that, not based on the – you could have a 600 total testosterone read, but your um, free testosterone may be down in the 20s or 30s. And um, that's the problem. Okay. And also, uh, the so fact y- is it's got nothing to do with your libido as well. So uh, a man can have very low libido and have uh, good testosterone numbers. The two are not necessarily connected.
0: Hmm. That's interesting to know. You, usually, it's a uh, you know, common assumption that they are related. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh i see what, and they can be, but it's not always the case.
0: Not always the case, gotcha. All right, let's talk about the metals. You you mentioned um, being toxic in certain metals, especially mercury. So what do you advise there? Go, go to the dentist and have all your fillings replaced? I mean, what what are you advising for those well, people in that category?
1: The, the very first thing I tell people anyway that have prostate cancer that come to me is what's the, what's the state of disease in your mouth? Um, there's enough data now to uh, to, to show that the disease of your mouth affects the disease of the rest of your body. Um, Yes. As an example, uh, uh, the mercury in your amalgam fillings, for instance, uh, is a key factor if you have high mercury. And you need to measure that. Uh, But as a matter of course, I tell people to get rid of it. Mercury is a poison, period, and a subject. Uh, Whether it affects your testosterone, or sorry, your prostate, or other organs in your body, it's still a poison. And it shouldn't be there. The other thing is uh, we look for is um, root canals. And what we find is, if you understand the principles of, of acupuncture uh, and the meridian, energy meridians of the body, there's enough data now from uh, from dentists that, uh, that do this study to show that with women with breast cancer, that the, rear, the back teeth, the molars, on the left or the right, upper or down, depending on the, where the breast cancer is, uh, has an effect on that particular cancer. Likewise, uh, the top two front teeth and the top two bottom teeth in a man for um, for prostate cancer. And uh, I know this personally because when I was diagnosed, uh, what we found out was that the one root canal in the front uh, right front upper tooth had gone bad and uh, was was very badly infected in fact, and they ended up removing the entire root canal and cleaning it out because it was a mess. And uh, I believe that that single thing alone started me on my my own personal recovery. So, those, so it's not just the mercury, but it's disease of the mouth generally. It's, it's uh, whatever money you spend on going to the dentist is uh, is money well spent.
0: So, so tell us the correlation now. Are you saying that patients who have had a root canal are possibly more prone to prostate cancer?
1: Yes. And uh, likewise, women with, with breast cancer. And the there's a book by Hal Huggins. Unfortunately, Hal passed away at the grand old age of 90 uh, of what we laughingly call natural causes. And uh, But uh, he did much of the research over the years. Another dentist, um, well, there's several what we call biological dentists out there that have written papers on this, and uh, they're well worth it. There's a, a, um, a paper published recently in the British press and which I sent to some of my British clients, uh, dealing with the whole fact that conventional dentistry continues to ignore the, the scientific data about amalgams and about mercury and about root canals. And um, I hear dentists on the radio frequently advertising their services. Uh, oh, yes, we do root canals. Well, that's the dentist that I avoid. Hmm. Because if they still do root canals and don't look at other ways to get cleaning up your mouth, that's not a dentist I want to. I want to go to.
0: Fair enough. I just recently um, switched toothpaste, and what I did was once a year. If you go to your hygienist, she will measure what's called your gum depth pocket. Yep. And if if it's if the depth pocket is short, meaning one millimeter, you're in you're in the excellent cal- category, which means that your gums and your teeth your gums are snugging next to your teeth very well. On the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a depth pocket of five millimeters, that means your gums, gums to teeth ratio is very loose, and that's when you possibly might be prone to cavities or getting a crown, or, or you know, goodness knows, you might even lose your tooth, and then you'll need a, a, a crown or a bridge or something else to take its place.
1: Well, it's so also a, it's that, also a home for, for bacteria.
0: Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, that, so and that the bacteria ex-
1: not only gets the gum, it gets the bone underneath it. Wouldn't you give it that opportunity to get to lodge itself in there?
0: Right. So what I did was I switched to almost all of the commercial toothpaste these days do have fluoride in them. And I recently switched to a non-fluoride. I think this company is, uh, this toothpaste is made in Sweden, but you can find it easily at any of the, the markets here. Anyway, I didn't tell my hygienist anything. And sure enough, it's the one year had gone by. It's time to do the the pocket depth again and i said how did we do and she says wow you did really excellent and i said well you know is that like five percent or ten percent how did we do and my pocket depth in only three months went up twenty percent it improved twenty percent so yeah i think i think all these minerals and um you know metals in your system has a very negative effect on our system
1: well, one of the things that um, I like to point out is we don't know much about uh, the body unless we measure it, and whether we're taking too much magnesium or not enough magnesium or too much calcium or whatever it happens to be, we need to measure it and find out what really is going on. And because you can be, you can have elevated levels of things that can be damaging, or you can have you can be deficient in them and it can be damaging. And people take supplements willy nilly, to be quite honest, based on a lot of things I see on television or reading various magazines, without ever having measured it. And all of the, excuse the expression, the crap you put in your body has to go through your kidneys and your liver. So why are we overloading those organs with stuff that we may not need when right. by simply measuring it, we can figure out what we need and only take that stuff?
0: Got it. Okay, and lastly, you mentioned emotional trauma. So what what is your recommendation in that area? Are you recommending the patient seek out yoga or, you know, psychotherapy or hypnotherapy? Like, what's your recommendation there?
1: Two things, German new medicine and recall healing are the two things that we deal with. And whether we recommend one or the other depends very much on where the person lives because the practitioners for both of these are actually... They're not uh, all over the place. There are, if you live in California or Los Angeles, then you're fortunate because there are people here that uh, are good practitioners. But if you live in maybe certain parts of any, any part of the country, then you may be better off going to German New Medicine as opposed to recall healing. If you're on the West Coast or the East Coast, recall healing is something we recommend. This is a, a psychoanalytic process. Um, with Recall Healing particularly, it only takes one or two visits. This is not an ongoing thing where you're paying someone you know, a couple hundred bucks a, a visit or whatever. This is a yeah. one or two thing where they can resolve unresolved emotional issues. It's really quite remarkable. And I, I would suggest looking up recallhealing.com particularly. The doctor is Dr. Gilbert Renaud. And what he developed was a development of German New Medicine plus a French doctor called Gilbert and he sort of put the best of both worlds together and came up with recall healing. German New Medicine has got a lot of um, followers and a lot of detractors, but I find it to be also very helpful in resolving unresolved emotional issues.
0: Got it. You're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We're on with uh, my guest today, Peter Starr. We were talking about uh, surviving prostate cancer. He's a 12-year survivor Um, you can get more information um, go to his site survivingprostatecancer.org survivingprostatecancer.org if you like the show show your love listen call like my fan page follow comment share and tell a friend we'll see you next week on the men's advocate show 3 p.m pacific 6 p.m eastern time thank you peter
1: thank you